In a world where some shifts can feel like slogging through a swamp of something unseemly, comes a beacon of hope. The flame-proof course on shift kick-assery. Pre-conference. Essentials of Emergency Medicine, May 29th, 2023. Las Vegas, Nevada. Details in the show notes. Where else would they be? I mean, really. Hello, my friends. How you doing? Hope you're well. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Gray. Sarah is an emergency intensivist. She's an associate professor at the University of Toronto. She's a leadership coach at the Cleveland Clinic who specializes in wellness and resilience. She's also a resuscitation team performance expert. If you've ever seen her speak on this, it is amazing. I mean, just watching her break down how to do CPR better is transformative. That's what I'm saying. So I asked Sarah to come on the show to deep dive into something I heard her discuss with Matt Delaney on ERCast. And it's basically, how do you recover from a bad shift? Or plug in whatever you want after that, a really bad X. And on the surface, this pod is about structuring resilience after one of these events, or actually structuring it beforehand so that you're prepared for these events when they happen. But I think on a deeper level, as I've gone back and listened to this, I think it's about trauma, your own trauma, because the difference between stress and trauma, or at least one of the differences is that stress, it passes, you know, the event ends, the stress dissipates, but trauma sticks with you. And these events can indeed be traumatic. And you have a, like a real, a kind of a bad case for just this really horrible shift. That stuff can come back up. You know, you can feel unexpected dread, or you can feel a physiologic reaction or aftershocks and trauma can get woven into your body and your response patterns. And the skills that Sarah is going to lay out have a lot to do with integrating these stressful or potentially traumatic, or you could say peak difficulty moments or events. And after these events, when we absorb them without addressing them, we can become always on hypervigilant And eventually, systems can become overloaded. And the problem, or let's say a problem, comes in denying or trying to shove these events aside. What we want to do is we want to lean into them. We want to slow things down. We want to expand that space and lean in. We don't want to discount it. Because you know that like, if you get out of the day at work and you say, oh, that was the worst shift ever. That's not one thing. These things happen from time to time. So ever is a relative term. And I think that these events are a constituent element of healthcare work. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you work in an emergency department, you're a radiation oncologist or a GI doc or a nurse or a tech or a paramedic or a realtor or an architect. I'm going to keep going on and on. It doesn't matter. You can just kind of have these just worst events. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the skills in this episode are part of a framework for integrating these events integrating these events into you. And let's just take a look at the opposite of that, which would be disintegration. That is dis with a hyphen integration or disintegrating. The event's going to happen. And integrating an event is, it's like putting sugar in a bucket of water. Then the sugar dissolves and becomes part of it. And it may be a rough ride in the beginning as all that sugar is getting dumped in, but it's possible to even come out a little stronger at the end. Disintegration is like dumping oil on that same water. That's not going to be processed in an effective way. You just kind of get an oil slick on top. We have a much deeper dive on all of that in the works for a future episode. So let's get into today's show with the inimitable Dr. Sarah Gray. I heard you speak on how to approach a bad day at work a while ago. And it really struck me that there's this massive gap between the reality that it's going to happen and then how we address it. You know, like we know it's going to happen and it happens regularly, but then when it does happen, we deal with it kind of piecemeal. We hope it all just turns out okay. And you said something 
in this talk that it was, was kind of like a like a bell. Oh my gosh, should I put in a little bell sound effect here? Like a, <laughs> I don't know. Do we do it? I'll lead it up to you. Oh yeah, do it. Okay, here it is. Bing. Was that you need to plan in advance for a terrible day. And I'm curious like, how that realization came about. And then what do you mean by it? Oh, so, I mean, so I totally hear you, Rob. Like we train to manage all sorts of disasters, to manage the worst cases, uh, but nobody teaches you how to recover when it goes badly. And I mean, I work half emergency medicine, half critical care. I do a lot of resuscitation. And sometimes we don't get the outcome we're hoping for. And for the first, I don't know, many years of my career, I really had no idea how to cope with that or even that I needed to learn how to cope with that or needed a strategy for that. But as you work in those careers, you start to accumulate cases that are difficult, cases that stay with you, cases that haunt you. And I finally, you know, had a bad enough case that I realized I wasn't okay. Like I came to this place where I wasn't sleeping well and I wasn't eating well and I was snapping at colleagues at work. And, you know, I was impacted enough that I could tell I wasn't okay. And then I was in this weird space of knowing I wasn't okay and not knowing how to get out of it. Yeah. And that was interesting because we trained so much to know what to do in every situation, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I have algorithms for everything. And all of a sudden I'm in this space and I'm like, oh, I actually don't know how to fix this. And so, you know, I spent a couple years, like I got a therapist, I started talking to people, I started reading books, I took some courses, you know, just trying to figure out A, what was wrong with me uh, and then B, how to make that better. and through that process, came up with a strategy, you know, for how I was going to manage myself when I was going through a crisis and, you know, things that I knew would help me feel better. But it occurred to me as I went through that, like, man, it would have been so much easier if I knew some of this in advance. Like if somebody had just told me in advance, I needed to have a plan for this, I could have saved myself a year of grief at least. Uh, (laughs) And I was like, huh, maybe we should start telling people that. Like maybe we should just, you know, talk about that to our residents or at a conference that this is a thing that's going to happen to all of us. And that if you have a plan, you can make your recovery so much easier. You have this dread afterwards. And if you don't have a process, what can end up happening is you can end up, I'd love to say that I I came up with this, but this was, you know, one of my clients is is like, you end up dreading dread. You dread dread. And it's like, wait, you know what? If you have a framework... No, it's like that stoic reframe of what if the catastrophization of like, oh my God, what if, what if, what if, and that just builds up and it builds up and you switch that to, okay, what's next? What's next? Incrementalize. And that switches from catastrophization and rumination to I've got my steps. What do I do next? I got this taken care of. Yes. And it, it changes the whole approach. And so now rather than having, you know, those weeks and weeks of floundering, <laughs> which, which, and I had weeks, I mean, and maybe I'm a slow learner. It may have been months, Rob, um, where I just literally did not know what to do. Now I'll hit a crisis. And I usually, you know, spend the rest of that day just in crisis with whatever that is. And then I wake up the next morning and I'm like, okay, I have a plan for this. Do you think it's similar with this a bad case versus just kind of like a bad shift. Sometimes you, you open up that shift and it doesn't smell right and it gets more sour as the whole day goes on. Maybe it's you, maybe it's just the kind of the luck of the draw. Do you think that those are kind of the same thing or are those going to be different approaches in the end? For me, I find it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's the same whether it's a bad case or it's a bad shift or um, I have a fight with my teenager, or someone gets sick. It's a, it's become like it started as something that I rolled out for bad cases, and it's become my generalized response to crisis, not otherwise specified. I'm so glad that you said that you use it outside of medicine. Because during the spring, I spent a lot of time as a lacrosse referee. For oh, wow. It's awesome. For high school girls lacrosse. Okay. And I officiated a playoff game recently. Okay. 
And you escaped alive, I see. So that's good. I did. And I as you know, and I and I made some calls that were they were by the book, they were right calls, but you know, during the regular season, I would have, you know, I've been like, hey, you know, I probably would have talked to the players beforehand and this, but you know, this was the playoffs. So I was like, by the book. And the more senior refs, like, oh no, man, you're being too by the book. I was like, oh, I'm I'm kind of doing a bad job. And I left that game feeling like, oh my God, I just suck. And it was, I mean, and plus, <laughs> oh, no. and, the, and the stakes, I mean, it's just, you know, it's like yeah. the sports, whatever, but still the stakes were so high. They were uh, for these teams and you like the emotion yeah. was high and like the, it was the, the crowd and all this stuff. I mean, the crowd is never cheering on the ref. No, of course <laughs> and not. So, and the parents on the sidelines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was funny. I made one call, the team like immediately, like just like turned on me with these rabid faces. I was like, God, that probably was a bad call, but I have to kind of stick <laughs> with I got to stick with it now. Anyway, I had a three and a half hour drive home from this game. And I felt, uh, frankly, I felt depressed. Like that's the only way I can say it. We're not talking about somebody dying because you couldn't get their airway. We're talking about something that is, you know, basically so a fet as like, you know, refereeing a high school sports game. Yeah. But it was the, it was, I'm telling you, Sarah, it was the exact same feeling I had with a bad case. And so I thought of your framework because I was preparing for this interview. Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. I am going to do the exact framework and it <laughs> worked. It worked. Oh, that's amazing. You know, you still kind of feel the echoes of the event afterwards, like, ah, I feel it. But you know what? Actually, I had a process and now I've moved through it. And I'm going to talk about the first step of what happened because in the very first part of it, as you're kind of processing the emotion, you have some specific recommendations, which I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I did it and it was incredible. So before we get into this, give me the bird's eye view. I guess the very first step, which is almost the, uh, you know, almost step zero, is to just recognize that you had the bad case, that whatever it was that happened, you now are wrestling with that aftermath and you're having feelings or emotions or vulnerability or shame or whatever it is, but just recognizing where you're in that space where you need to activate a framework. And so then once I know I'm there, that I'm in some sort of crisis or I'm floundering, my first step is to find a way to talk about it. We know that staying silent can be deadly. That's how we accumulate shame and self-judgment and self-criticism and other harmful downstream effects. Um, so you got to find a way to talk about it. And we can talk more in detail about that afterwards, Rob, but while you're in that stage of talking to people about it and grappling with it, you need to look after yourself. You need to have a process for your self-care and keeping yourself happy. And then at the end, my last step is once you've worked through your issues, once you've talked through it, once you're feeling better, once you understand clearly what happened, I then have this phase where I try to find the silver lining or find the lesson or find the growth moment because there's always something there that I can learn to try to use that to get better for the next time. And that's where I really get to acceptance. Once I'm able to learn something from it, that's really helpful for me in moving forward. All right. So we've got this trifecta, maybe a quadrifecta, because I guess the first part of this is, the, is, is awareness. Because if you don't, then you can't apply this. Correct. Correct. Then there's the initial processing. You've got to process emotion, yeah. that the initial responses, it's purely emotional, can't be logical. The, the initial process, then self-care, then the silver lining. And it's a very clear sequence of yeah. events, but backing it up to talking it out. Okay. So um, <laughs> this is, uh, there's going to be like a full story arc to, to this one. So you've got a lot of different ways that I want to get into of how you talk it out. There's yeah. Failure friend. There's the journaling. There's the debrief, et cetera. But yeah. For me personally, the failure friend, the absolute most powerful thing. You know, when I was in clinical practice, I had several failure friends. I would have different failure friends for different cases. Do you know Britt Long? Yeah. Yeah. So he he does emdocs.net. He's got the podcast. He's 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 everywhere. So yeah. he, he was on the show talking about 
caring for the unapologetically unvaccinated. And just, <laughs> and he was working in this COVID hospital. You know, he was, he's in the military, he's deployed, and this is like yeah, this yeah. underserved area, all COVID. And it was just so hard. And so he started this process when he'd be driving back from a shift, he'd call someone or talk to someone and said, hey, I need to unload for like two to five minutes and I don't need any feedback. In fact, you don't have to speak at all. I just need you to listen. That's super potent because as great advice givers, when we're listening are so prone and have like just feel this urge to give the advice or you know, some kind of placation that we think somebody's going to- Yes, to make it better. better. Yeah, to make it better. But I also love how he was able to have enough insight to frame it for his friend, to be able to not just like make the call and vent and unload, but to set that framework of like, I already know what I need. And I'm going to tell you up front what I need from you. So I get what I need. Like, that's so powerful. My wife and I still talk about it. You know, she she co-produces the show with me. She's like, oh yeah, this uh, that thing with Brit was- Super important. And I I thought about that after this lacrosse game. <laughs> so <laughs> when I would have bad critical care cases, I would call Scott Weingart to review the details of it and go through like, okay, how, how do I get better? Like kind of my silver lining, right? That we'll get to. Okay. Yes. I mean, honestly, having Scott Weingart as a friend really pays off. <laughs> then, He's a good guy to have in your corner. Oh my God. I would, I would, uh, I would call him like mid shift to be like, Hey Scott, I've got this peak pressures and plateau pressures are all over the place. He goes, Oh yeah, here's what you need to do. Great. I called him once after I had just like a horrible case. I was like, Oh, they'd be my failure friend here. And uh, he said, nah, nah, nah. Here's how you messed up the case. I was like, oh, okay. Not the best, not the best for my <laughs> failure friend. But after this game, now, I mean, now, uh, you know, Scott and I have been friends for uh, like years and years and years. And it's in, and now our friendship is purely just friendship. It's not based on any kind of medical thing anymore. We don't talk about medical stuff anymore. Right. So while he was not my critical care failure friend, he is my f- uh, failure friend for, you know, really hard things like this. Mm-hmm. So I called him. I said, hey, dude, I just got to unload <laughs> on this thing. <laughs> and the beautiful thing was... He knows nothing about the game, so it's not like he can analyze and say, oh, yes, on this particular thing, I said, oh, yeah, man, that sucks. And it was great. I just, it felt like a weight was lifted. Yes. Just being heard and being validated. Yes. Yeah, it makes a huge difference, right? And they don't need to know the content half the time. It's not about the details of the medicine. It's about all of these emotions and feelings you're having that you need help processing. So how do you go about picking your failure friend? And then how do you engage with them? Okay. So, and it varies. So I'm like you, I have different failure friends for different things. Like I certainly have an emergency medicine failure friend. I have a critical care failure friend. I've got, I now have like 11 parenting failure friends. (laughs) (laughs) I started with a couple and that was just gross. So I have a coaching failure friend. It started by me recognizing that I needed this, that I needed somebody where I could just go and be like, I had this case. I think I failed. I need to talk through everything that happened and not to talk about, you know, the medicine necessarily, but to talk about how I was feeling. And so, you know, when you're thinking about who you want to choose, certainly you want to choose somebody nice. I think (laughs) nice is really important. Somebody who's capable of listening is super important. And somebody who understands your context is valuable, although not necessarily required. You know, I just, I started by talking to a friend and just saying, hey, can we talk through this terrible case? I don't need you to tell me what you would have done. I just need to know if you've ever felt this way. And she was able to say, oh yeah, like I felt that. And that alone, like all of a sudden, I just felt so much connection with her. And it just moved our, we had always been friends and friendly, but it moved our relationship into this whole different sphere where now we were able to have these authentic conversations on a totally different level. And, you know, a few months went by and then she came to me with a case and I was able to just Ah, listen to her and be there for her. And it kind of grew from there because she was like, oh, that was really helpful. And I was like, yeah, for me too. And we just started 
by experiencing it, we started to really recognize the value of having that kind of relationship. And so now I look for it and I strategically build it wherever I go with somebody who I feel that connection with. I'm going to flip this around since you, you just, you were talking about the two sides of the coin, you being on both sides of this. Yeah. What, what are the strategies or, you know, like the, the skills in being a good failure friend? That's a great question. Okay. So it's interesting. I've never been asked that question. So that's a really good question. And I, I have a bunch of answers, but I actually think the first one is to ask, what do you need from me right now? Or how can I best support you right now? Or whatever your version of that question is, so that they have the opportunity to say, hey, I just need you to listen, or I need you to tell me what you would have done or whatever it was. And you can get that direct feedback so you know exactly what they're hoping you will provide. And if you're not sure or you haven't had that conversation, then I think you're just listening. Uh, you are validating, like, I hear you. I get it. I understand. I've been there too. If you can, you're normalizing their reaction. Wow, I get it. I would respond that same way too. Oh yeah, I've seen that happen to other people. They've responded the same way, right? Normalization helps us feel better and just not solving their problem. They don't need you to solve their problem. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. So that is the second question is what are the pitfalls of failure friending? And you so you said yeah. trying to solve the problem. What else? Yes, and that's the me like that's yeah. the Grand Canyon of pitfalls, right? When you jump in to solve their problem, it's essentially like it's never what they need. I've never had a failure friend come to me and be like, "Oh yeah, thanks for solving my problem for me." <laughs> <laughs> they already know how to solve their problem. They just need somebody to listen to them. And so and that's actually my biggest challenge is keeping my big mouth shut. Because as an emergency physician, like I solve problems for people all day. I give them advice. I tell them what I think they should do. I blah, blah, blah. And that's, I have to rein all of that in, in mm. a huge way when I'm being someone's failure friend to just let them keep ownership of it and let them keep that integrity that comes with being able to solve their own problem without me getting in their way. I didn't realize that this whole podcast is going to be about the failure friend, but maybe it will be. <laughs> so, so, the third step of this that, that we'll get to is the silver lining and, you know, how do you find meaning and how do you, how do you move on and how do you learn? But right now, we're in the real, just kind of raw emotional aspect of this, right? You cannot solve emotional issues with logic. Emotional yeah. issues need emotional absorption and compassion and even empathy. But one thing that happens here as the failure friend is to not necessarily solve the problem, but reframe it in the positive way in that moment. I was talking with a friend the other day where it, there was a case of you know, somebody who was being admitted for a non-ST elevation MI, that elevation car cardiac enzymes. It was just, you know, it was pretty clear cut. But then there was a, some kind of little spidey sense of... Um, like, oh, there's something not quite right here. So right before the patient goes up, says, mm, I just, so, I don't feel right about this. There's something not right. I, I did the send them for a CAT scan of the chest and they had this aortic dissection and they went to the OR in minutes and that wow. doc was just floored thing. I almost killed that patient. And so my buddy who was talking with them immediately after said, oh no, you saved them. This is like incredible. He said, you know, so it was an immediate reframe while the emotion was still being processed. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. It's like, oh yeah, you know, that's all right as a failure friend. You know, if you feel the inclination or hold off on the reframes and just listen and validate. So my personal approach is to listen and validate. But then once I've done a bit of that, like if I see that positive reframe, I'll ask if they want to hear my perspective. And sometimes, they, sometimes they're ready to hear an alternate perspective. And sometimes they're like, no, I've got 10 more minutes of venting I need to do. And I say, <laughs> have at it, carry on. <laughs> uh, you know, and let them choose. And sometimes they're like, yeah, you know, I need that outside perspective. How do you see this? And then you can offer them the reframe. And then let them take that wherever they want to go. Maybe they're going to engage with it. Maybe they're not ready. 
I really find a huge piece of it is sitting back and letting them direct the conversation as much as possible. And you're just there as the sounding board. You're just reflecting back whatever they're coming with in the most supportive way you can. We're so hardwired to diagnose and treat. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh boy. This is a nursemaid's elbow where the reframe is so, (laughs) so obvious. But uh, this is not a diagnose and treat situation. This is just, this is just really a decompression. Yes, it's just a decompression. It's like that hot debrief idea, right? Of just letting people get out their emotions and those initial reactions, because that's a huge part of what we need to do emotionally to recover, is to grapple with all of those feelings, get clear on what those feelings are, be able to express them and have them heard. So you and I clearly are failure friend <laughs> advocates and acolytes. <laughs> totally. Uh, how, however, you know, it's m- maybe not for everyone. So what, what other, in, this, in, in like this first stage of the three-stage process, what other things might people consider as far as the processing goes? Yeah. So you don't have to have a failure friend or maybe you want one, but you don't have one yet. <laughs> you can still just talk to a regular friend. You can talk to your family or somebody who you find supportive. You can get a mental health professional or a therapist to help yeah. you. I mean, when you think about it, a therapist is like the ultimate failure friend. <laughs> they are trained in empathy and supportive listening and positive yeah. reframing. They will listen to you talk about the same damn thing over and over for as long as you want for years if you need to. And they will never pick up their phone. They will never block your call. They will never get distracted. <laughs> And so like that's a marvelous resource that we that we should avail ourselves of. I have a a buddy who he we will have him on the show. He's got a podcast called The Grit that he's a, also an ED doc and really he just talks with docs about traumatic stories and it really it's the whole thing is about processing and one of the episodes there was a um a stabbing and it was it was really horrific. It was a mom who had stabbed her kids, and it was like you know we're doing thoracotomies on children, and the, it was just the worst of the worst. And it was super traumatic for everybody involved. And I and I and I know the the doc that was on the show, and she's like, you know, I tried and tried and tried and tried to process it, but I needed a professional to help guide me through it. We are such cowboys and cowgirls, and it's like, yeah, I can get through it. I can get through it. And sometimes you just can't. She ended up doing EMDR. So it's kind of like this like eye movement mm-hmm. based therapy. So like, yeah, it was actually really helpful. And I needed deep work on that single moment to just t- to work through it until she could then get to the other steps, which we'll, you know, we will get to as well. Yeah. And I mean, I'm all for people being cowboys or cowgirls and, you know, the individual individualistic nature we have, but you can probably get through it faster with professional help. Yeah. So it's not that you can't do it on your own. Uh, You probably could, but what if you could do it in half the time? Like, wouldn't that be worth a few therapy sessions? I don't know. Like, I think, I think we just have to get over that whole stigma. It's, it's, it's crazy to me that we have no problem seeking specialty advice if we have a broken bone or a rotator cuff tear, or you need your appendix out, you know, but uh, all of a sudden it's something around your emotional health and and we don't want to engage, why not engage with the best professional you can find? What role do you think debriefing plays in this first stage of working through the bad shift or the bad case or the bad day? Actually, I think it's huge. And I think there are two pieces there that I think are really important for performance. One is just the opportunity to learn medical things we could have done better from a process perspective to keep us, you know, in that growth mindset of getting better at our craft. But I think the best debriefs explicitly go into how people are feeling and what their emotional reaction is and validating the range of emotional reactions that people might have, because that's very individual. But just opening the door to that conversation in a group setting then allows people to leave the debrief and reconnect on those issues. 
with somebody else who was supportive for them in the space or with whoever was leading the debrief. Uh, it just starts that conversation and makes it so much easier for people to start talking and processing. And I think it's, I think it's huge. So I think the best debrief leaders don't just talk the medicine. They explicitly make a space where people can talk about their emotional reactions. How do you do that? Let's say there's a, a case that went south or that or maybe even doing so, I don't know, whatever, making the space. Because, you know, you can say like, okay, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you feel? What went well? What didn't go well? You know, kind of like the usual debrief questions. But as far as making that space, I mean, what is, do you have a particular script or a particular setup for that? Yeah, I, so I tend to start with it because I find if you start with the medicine, people just stay in the medicine and you can't get them out. Yeah. So I usually open with we're going to talk about the medicine in just a minute and we'll walk through the case in detail. But I want to start by hearing just how people are feeling. What are your first reactions? What's coming up for you right now? And then I stop and somebody will say something and I'll validate whatever that is. And, I'll, and then I say, there are a whole range of emotional reactions. So, you know, some of you may be feeling the same way. Some of you may be able, maybe feeling different. Who else? is willing to share how they're feeling right now and just let four or five or six of them talk about it. If nobody jumps in, I'll open with how I'm feeling to break that ice because that can just sort of make the space. But I really, and if somebody launches into, well, the triage should have been this since, you know, I'll stop mm -hmm. them and say, really just want to spend the first three or four minutes just on how people are feeling and how important it is to acknowledge whatever emotional response you may have right now. And are you doing that as a hot debrief kind of right then and there? You know, people are going to go have patients to see, have stuff to do. So occasionally we'll do it right in that minute in the room, or if not, we're doing it sort of 20 minutes later. Mm -hmm. So give people 20 minutes to go check on their patient or grab a glass of water and then come mm -hmm. back to it. We'll announce the time overhead whenever it is, but it's usually still right there early on. And yeah, I, I, I really like to make sure the first few minutes are devoted just to how people are feeling so that we ensure that that piece is discussed. So we've got debriefing, failure friends, professional help, and another way to go about this, journaling. You know, some, <sighs> some people like journaling is super potent. And I, I'm really curious your thoughts on this because I you know, have experimented with journaling for years. And there is only one kind of journaling that I can do that actually works for things like this, or I, I kind of actually apply it to everything. It is the morning pages, uh, which is three or four pages, blank pages, stream of consciousness. You just write, there's no prompt. You just start writing. And if you get halfway through and you don't have anything else to say, just keep writing, untangling those brain knots. And when I've been in just difficult situations, or I want to prepare for something, or I need to just kind of settle it, and I'm not finding that I can do that by other ways, that particular form of journaling, very powerful. Yeah, that's interesting, right? And journaling is really a, a form of, again, helping us process whatever's happening for us. Some people like the morning pages. Some people do it before they go to bed. Some people like to have certain prompts. I per I've tried journaling maybe a billion times, Rob, unsuccessfully every time. So maybe I need a journaling failure friend. I've, I've never mastered the art. Uh, I confess. I just find it easier to talk to somebody. Yeah. But it is a really great strategy for some people. So I think it's worth a shot, you know, for anybody. It, it really resonates for people and can help them. I have a friend who comes home when she's had a bad case and she writes everything down, everything that she feels or thinks about the case, like she just writes copiously and she'll sort of write 10 or 15 pages about whatever this was that she's trying to process. And then once she's put every single thing she can think of on the page, she goes out to her backyard and she lights it on fire and she lets it go. <laughs> <laughs> And she says she finds it enormously therapeutic. Oh, wow. You and I clearly are verbal processors with this. Yeah. And I, I find journaling to be a chore. And this I, I often don't find like an intrinsic reward at the end. But maybe if I could crumple up that whole thing and just throw it in the solo stove and set it alight. Right? That right? would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it might be just what you need to write that extra page. All right. So 
step one in this is processing. And the second part of the triad is self-care. And I love that this is defined as one of the three things that you do because self-care often you know, gets done or fit in if there's time, but not necessarily yes. scheduled or protected. Yes, which is shocking, right? We should, uh, we should know better. As healthcare providers, we should know that we need to take care of ourselves. But yeah, so I think, you know, when you're in this phase of processing and working through these difficult emotions, taking care of yourself, comforting yourself is a huge piece to making yourself strong enough to heal through all of that. And so, you know, there are a million different self care strategies. This is certainly individual for everybody, but you want to think about what are the activities that comfort you, A, or make you feel better, uh, but what leaves you feeling refreshed or energized? What are those things where you just lose track of time, you get so engaged in doing it? And you should have a list, I think, personally, of all of those things. I call this my happy list. In fact, that's what my kids started calling it okay. years ago. Yeah. yeah. Because the thing is, when you're in the middle of a crisis, and your frontal lobe stops working, and you're getting yanked around by your amygdala, it is very hard to go home and choose healthy self-care as what you're going to do that evening. And it's much easier to go home and make the world's biggest martini and pick up some unhealthy habits. And so if you have a list or a plan in advance, and you have it written down, you don't have to think about it anymore. You don't need your brain to work because you've done all the work in advance to write your list of things that help you. And so I have this huge long list of tiny little things that make me feel better, like read a great book or uh, listen to your favorite album or go for a run or uh, play with your puppy or hug your kid or whatever it is. But it makes it easy for me to come home and then look at my list and pick a few things I want to do when I know I need that. I think an easy reaction to self-care is that, you know, it's kind of self-indulgent. How would you respond to that? So I would say, what would you say to any of your patients or even to your best friend when they were in crisis? Would you tell them, to take an afternoon off and take care of themselves? Or would you tell them to immediately hammer straight back to work and not get any help or do anything else? We know what we would say to our friends. We would say, <laughs> hey, take a little time off. Like, let's go have a cup of coffee. Let's, you know, do something nice. Uh, give yourself some time to recuperate and recover. And we need that too. We like to think we're, uh, you know, omnipotent in medicine and that we're all powerful and don't need any recovery time. But the science tells us we are fooling ourselves. We need to build up our own resources so we can go back to work doing the incredibly important job we do at the top of our game. Your patients deserve you to be at the top of your game and you need self-care to be there. Another aspect that really plagues this group of extremely high performers is the inner critic. And we can be so non-compassionate with ourselves. On your flow of this process, you know, you have your, first is your processing, then is self-care. And part of self-care is self-compassion to recover faster, to control stress, to control your cortisol response, to perform yes. better under stress. And self-compassion is a trainable skill. So that sounds great. It's like, well, yeah, I can be compassionate. So how do you do it? Oh my God, it's so hard. It's <laughs> it's so hard, especially if you're a perfectionist, right? Yeah, Perfect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So th th I mean, this is. Um, I'll tell you all the different ways I do it, Rob. Uh, yeah. And and this should and there, be. And there's there are books on this, right? There's like self compassion yes. by Christina. There's all, all sorts of resources, courses, but... and and so for me, the way I'm thinking about this lately is around building a kinder habit. And so I have the unfortunate habit of being intensely self-critical, and that expresses itself most through my inner voice. And most people, if they think about it, actually can hear their own inner voice. 
Mm-hmm. And if you're not sure you can hear it, you should try, you know, spilling your coffee down your shirt and then just listening to what your brain does. Because <laughs> it usually says something like, Sarah, you idiot, you just spilled coffee. And so my, you know, my personal inner voice is very critical. And when I first figured that out and started recognizing the impact of self-criticism on performance, on wellness, on resilience, you then have to build a different habit. And I had had that habit going for, you know, at least 30 years before I started trying to think about doing anything different. So there was some time there. And so there are two pieces to this, at least for me, there are two pieces. One is that initial recognition of, oh, I've fallen into self-criticism. And the more I practice that, the faster I am able to recognize So rather than going like four hours in an evening with my brain beating myself up over a case, I'm able to recognize earlier and earlier, oh, this is self-criticism. This is my inner voice uh, yelling at me. And then you can just choose to say it to yourself more kindly, whatever it is. And some days I can just reframe in my brain and, you know, have my brain start saying something more kind. Some days I have to say it out loud to myself. Some days I fail and I have to pick up with self-kindness the next morning. But it's just building a kinder habit of how you speak to yourself, trying to speak to yourself in the same language with the same tone that you would use with your best friend. Because we would never say to our best friends many of the things we are willing to say to ourselves. So true. And, and you know, I mean, there's so many incredible tools on this and different things are going to work for different people as, you know, writing a letter to yourself in the third person. There's, we've had an episode on silencing your inner critic, which is really not silencing. It's just sort of managing your inner critic because it's always going to be there. So it's just part of your internal dialogue. And I'm going to show you one thing that I do. I've never talked about this on the show before and the listeners aren't going to be able to see this, but hang on, let me, I've got to go get this that I have right next to my desk. Okay. Bring it on. I want to see it. Okay. So I have a picture. Oh, that's me. Is that that's you? Oh, this is that's, so adorable. That's me when I was, I don't know, five years old. Yeah. Yeah. So that's me. And like, who's still inside of me. And yeah. sometimes I will just look at that picture and say like, oh, how you doing? You're still, you're still inside there. And uh, I got you. I got you, buddy. You know, it's just a quick moment of kind of embracing yourself and your real inner nature and your wiser, almost like more primordial self before you've collected all of these layers of things that have protected you and things that have benefited you over time, but things that can also be maladaptive and potentially destructive. It's like, yeah, you know what? I also am still that little kid. And uh, let me give you a hug. That works for me. Oh, I love that, Rob. That's beautiful. Right. And I mean, I totally appreciate your point about how like our inner critics aren't trying to hurt us. Typically, they're trying to help us stay perfect. You know, they're trying to help us be bulletproof. So Sharon Salzberg, who's a a meditation teacher, has this great concept around when your inner critic is getting really loud, what it needs is a hug or a cup of tea or to be told to go take a nap for a little while. That what like what your inner critic really needs is comfort to make yeah. it stop talking. Yeah. Uh, listeners sent an email after that inner critic episode that reframed it nicely that you're not silencing anything. You're acknowledging and you are then bringing to the forefront your wiser, more compassionate part of you, not even yes. self. You can say like, yes, I have different selves inside of me, but it's like, this is all me. It's just a different part of me that I would rather have at the forefront right now. Yes. I'm going to let this part of me talk right now. You take a pause right now. Take a pause. So yeah, we've been through now, now we've kind of been through the processing of this and, and, and acknowledging it. And then it's the silver lining. We had talked about reframe. This is the reframe. It's like getting to the summit and you finally look around and it's like, ah, oh, yes, there is a beautiful view of the mountains below. It's incredible, but you can't get there at the beginning because you're hurting. And I'm curious how do you know that you are ready for the silver lining? Hmm. So you're ready in part when you can see it. Mm. You know, like, because I've been through things where I can't see the silver lining for a long, long time. 
and people will say, oh, what's the silver lining in this, Sarah? And I'll say, ah, there is no silver lining, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> which, which means I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm still in processing and self-care. But once you can see it, you're there. But there's also a piece around feeling it, feeling the acceptance that comes from that because it feels categorically different from that early crisis, emotional turmoil phase. And once you can see it, once you can feel grateful for it, once you can feel acceptance for what happened, that's when you're there. I love it. You ask yourself, where's the gift here? Yeah. When you can even sit with that question then you're ready to start answering. Well, it's just kind of like, oh, no, 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 cannot even ask. Yes. And you'll know <laughs> if somebody's like, oh, can you find silver lining and you want to punch them? You're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> How do you go about the process we're, you know, talking about like a very defined structure of pulling out the silver lining? And so this is easiest for me if I think about small problems, <laughs> or what I think about in my mind is a small problem. Say you have a case that doesn't go that well, but it's not an epic catastrophe. You go home, you have some feelings about it, you talk to your failure friend, you spend a few days in self-care, but it wasn't that big a deal. So maybe by the following week, you're ready to sit down and find that silver lining. And maybe that's, hey, I don't know enough about that particular branch of medicine. So you sit down on your computer the next week and you learn about it. Uh, or you decide to teach about it, or you decide you need to phone a friend and get all the details or the latest information so that you don't make that mistake again. Like once you're there strategizing through that growth process, you're finding the silver lining. And that can happen, at least for me, it happens more rapidly with small problems. And then, you know, you hit a big crisis, it might take you years to find the silver lining. But I do think you eventually find it. Makes me think of another thing that Jason Brooks taught me. And actually, I would say redirected me. You know, I was asking him about bouncing back, you know, bouncing back after these things. Like, you know, it's, it's we are not bouncing back. You know, we think like, okay, hard knock, bounce back. Mm. And that implies that you're right back at your original place. The goal with this, with the silver lining, you know, what, what I learned here, how do I move forward, is that it's elevated from where you started. So you kind of earn the right, if you feel that you are to blame, you earn the right to forgive yourself. You have this, you know, this, this deeper sense or this deeper meaning of what you do. You adapt, you move forward. And, you know, you can't undo what happened. It, it happened. Like this bad yeah. day happened or this bad event happened. You make space for it. And how does this then move you or propel you to the higher level of performance? Do you learn from it? Do you say like, I will approach this differently next time, or, you know, I am wiser for it. And where is the purpose? Where is the gift? If you want to slap yourself in the face by saying gift, you're not ready. Yeah. yeah. But it's there. Yeah. And the harder the hit, the harder it is to, harder it is to get there, which actually makes me think of this other exercise that I learned about that this put it all in perspective. This was Sherzad, oh God, what is his name? He wrote Positive Intelligence. And there's a, they had a coach's course and we kind of did this exercise with it. The exercise was divide your life into five parts. So if you're 50, 10 year increments. Okay. And, you know, that doesn't have to be exact. And in each one of those segments, think of something bad that happened, that when it was happening, you're like, oh, this is just horrible. But now that you've had time, you've been able to process it, there's some distance, you see that as a gift. It's made you who you are today. And you look back at each one of those things, and there's no shortage of events in each quadrant that shows you that, yeah, you actually can grow. In the heat of the moment, it seems impossible. It actually, you know what? It seems insulting to say like, ah, oh, here, how can you grow from this horrible thing? I'm insulted by that. But you know what? Look back. What does the evidence say has happened to you after these events? Yes, it can be years and years and years, but you will fundamentally change. And planning in advance for that terrible day, create the framework to actively pull out that silver lining. And to, I also find it's just hopeful, Rob. 
once you know that eventually there will be a silver lining and that you just can't see it yet, but that you're going to get there, there's an element of hope in that that I find helpful. And I do want to acknowledge that we're talking about this process as if it is like this one directional thing and that you are healed and cured. (laughs) This is not a uh, check, set it, forget it, I'm all good. It's kind of just kind of goes into this miasma and this processing is not like this linear, clearly defined, each step is like, yes, check, oh yes, check. It's going to come back, you're going to keep working through it again. Absolutely. Right. And hopefully when you work through it again, you've learned a little bit the first time that you can bring to bear, but yeah, it's not linear. And there's also the multi-hit phenomena, right? Maybe you have one bad case and then the next week, another one. And then the next week, a third thing goes wrong. That's going to be fundamentally harder than the single injury. But it becomes easier when you start recognizing that you have a possible path out Mm. so that even though you're back to processing or thinking about that event or grappling with it, the easier it becomes to see the road out, the faster you start healing. As you say that makes me think of a call to action to the listeners and not the first time that I've said this, but you have an extremely demanding job and it is so easy to keep accumulating tasks and shifts and having less and less time to recover between that. And there is no substitute for time and just recharging those batteries and refilling the tank. If, if you play video games, it's like Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter where you've got your health bar and it's going down, 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 <laughs> down, 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 down. And it takes time for that health bar to come up. So I think that part of this is considering the whole arc of your career and how things are going to go. And right now, as my things are, are structured, how my life is structured, how my shifts are structured, how am I recovering and recharging between those shifts? Because that in and of itself is going to help to build some of this resilience. Yeah. So paying attention to, you know, making sure you're spending your downtime wisely making sure you're building in some time for yourself, blocking time for yourself in your calendar. You know, I get, uh, I hear the argument that people feel it's self-indulgent, but we also have clear science that physicians who are healthy and well, who are at the top of their resilience, perform better at work. You are a better doctor when you are healthy. And probably you're a better parent or a better sister or a better spouse. So if you aren't willing to do it for yourself, do it for your patients. That time you spend on yourself recharging makes you a better doctor on your next shift. And that's worth it. Sarah, awesome. Thank you so much. I mean, this. I'm thinking this conversation could be going on all day. Listeners, if you want a 24-7 <laughs> podcast, tune in to Rob and Sarah anytime, any day, 365 days a year, 366 on leap years. We got you covered, but I think we will, <laughs> think we will end it for today. Really a delight. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. It was great to talk to you. And that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one coaching, to get complete show notes for this or any other episode, sign up for our newsletter, and find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Maybe not, maybe it's happening. Just head over to our website, roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.